Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the opportunity to come and study again. Your love, your grace, your goodness to us. We ask that your spirit will draw close to us as we study about the cross today, that we'll have discernment and insight in what you've achieved for us. We pray in your holy name. Amen. A couple of announcements. Um, first, uh, many of you heard that uh, Dennis Hilton this week uh, had both a heart attack and a stroke. Um, and he, was, he got to the hospital very quickly, and they were able to go in, and they were able to get that clot out of his brain and put plot busters in. And I went and saw him last night at the hospital, and he was alert, and he was uh, talking reasonably well. Uh, didn't have any dysarthria, really. Uh, he was having word-searching issues still, but he was only about... 24 to 48 hours out from, from this. And uh, so he's doing really good. They're expecting he'll probably go home today. So that's how well he's doing. So we're very happy. I know you've been praying for him. So I know y'all been praying for him, and he really appreci- appreciates all, all of your support and prayers. And then I made an announcement last week that because of the postal costs and things, we weren't going to ship outside the country. But we had so much pleas that came in from around the world and so much support from people saying that they would support us in doing it, that we started shipping yesterday, and we shipped about 25 cases to Canada, Australia, and England yesterday, and we'll be shipping more um, this coming week. But the Lord is blessed, and, and, and this message is going forward, and the Lord is blessed. Okay, so um, I got a couple emails this week. This one came in from a gentleman in Michigan. He said, Dear Common Reason Class, I've been listening to your studies for almost four years now. I was brought up in a different faith and have been petrified my whole life of God. I studied about God up until about 12 years of age, and I believed that I would burn in hell for eternity. For the next 45 years, I pursued things of this world, but the Spirit was always calling me, and I knew there was a God through nature. I could see the vast sea of stars in the universe and knew there was something bigger out there. A friend and I were always interested in Daniel and Revelation, trying to figure out the end times. Five years ago, I came to an Adventist church through Revelation Seminar. From that day to today, I have been blessed to learn about God's character and government. I have come under some extreme pressure within our conference when I brought up Come and Reason. But I rarely take others' opinions as facts. One time, a sister sent me an article from an internet entitled, What's Wrong with Tim Jennings? And the next Sabbath, I asked, well, what did you think of it? And the next Sabbath I asked, what did you think of it? And she said, I don't know, I didn't read it. I noticed that within our conference there is organizational protection and a fear to trust one's own ability to reason. I have always wanted to find out for myself whether it be economics, science, politics, or the truth about God, so I stayed with the design law construct and have been liberated to understand the big picture. Once we consider design law, all the Bible stories and prophecies seem to fit perfectly. This has been a slow, almost four-year journey, but there are a few... There are a few that are starting to understand design law. It, it is truly beautiful to see these people grasping how God operates this universe of love and the liberation it has provided in their lives. It blows my mind to see how consistent design law is with what our founders believed. I hear statements like, that makes so much sense. To make a long story short, I sent you an attached request for three copies of The Remedy yesterday, but when I went to church, my brother said he was interested in a copy. Then I said, would you like two? He said yes. Then I asked, would you like three? He said yes uh, to that as well. So within a few seconds, I gave all three copies I requested earlier in the day. Could you please send me a case so I can get on with the work and quit bugging you? (laughs) Blessings to you and the entire Come and Reason family. And then last night, I received this email from Dennis Kremenetsky, uh, who attended our class here for quite some time with his fiance Elena Henninen, and this is what he wrote. I love everything about how Tim Jennings teaches, how he makes you want to learn for yourself, 
He makes you eager to learn more and not afraid to question, not afraid to reason things out and figure out the meaning of God's word. I lived in College Dale community for 18 years, and I just couldn't find my way to God. I felt pushed away by the church more, more than pulled in. I gave up for a long time, but then I started coming to come and reason, and things changed. There was some hope, something pulling me in, pushing me to question and learn, pushing me to not be afraid and just question, so I could really see God's love. I have just moved to Finland, and I would really love to be able to spread the word here of come and reason to my family and friends and to everyone else who will listen. I just wanted to say thank you to Tim Jennings and the community of come and reason. I have given, I, ha- I had given up. And you have pulled me back into Christ. Today I will be baptized for the first time. And it's all thanks to God spreading his word through you. Thank you all and wish you the best. So to Dennis, we want to celebrate with you today your baptism into Christ and welcome you into the family. Yes? So on to our lesson, which is lesson 13 in the quarterly of the book of Matthew. Crucified and risen. The memory text, uh, and it, a little curious as they it brought the memory text, but this is Christ in Matthew 28 after his resurrection speaking to the apostles, and he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Matthew 28 18. What do you think it means? All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Do you think he's stating that he is now reassuming the powers of? and authorities that he had prior to his incarnation, which he set aside during his incarnation. Do you think that's what he's saying? Now that I've finished my mission on earth, I'm, all authority has been given to me. Does authority denote more than power? Does it connote more than power? Authority. Doesn't authority also imply or connote the rightful the rightful? use of power. The right to use power. Has Christ ever been in a position where he did not have the legitimate right of rulership? Never, never was. So if he was always his legitimate right, he always had legitimate authority, why the need to state all authority had been given to him? It was always his. Had there ever been a time when his rightful use of power and authority was questioned. Could it be that humans didn't recognize Christ as truly equal with the Father? Could some people today still struggle and stumble over the rightfulness of Christ's authority in God's universe? Books, Patriarchs, and Prophets read about this question being asked in heaven about Lucifer asking this question, raising this question. Leaving his, this is uh, page 37. Leaving his place in the immediate presence of the Father, Lucifer went forth to diffuse the spirit of discontent among the angels. He worked with mysterious secrecy and for a time concealed his real purpose under the appearance of reverence for God. He began to insinuate doubts concerning the laws that governed heavenly beings. You think about that as we understand law now and what law means. uh, uh, Intimating that though laws might be necessary for the inhabitants of worlds, angels being more exalted needed so no such restraint for their own wisdom was a sufficient guide. Think that through. This is in, think, think that statement through. That is clearly imperial law thinking. We don't need a rule about speed limits. We know how to keep this, our, our car under control. It's an arbitrary law. It's not saying 
Angels don't need to breathe. We don't need the laws of gravity and physics. He's not talking design law stuff. This is an implication, but it's very subtle. They were not beings that could bring dishonor to God. All their thoughts were holy. It was no more possible for them than for God himself to err. The exaltation of the Son of God as equal with the Father was represented as an injustice to Lucifer, who, it was claimed, was also entitled to reverence and honor. If this prince of angels could simply attain his true exalted position, great good would accrue to the entire host of heaven, for it was his object to secure freedom for all. But now, even the liberty which they had hitherto enjoyed was at an end, for an absolute ruler had been appointed them, and his authority, and to his authority all must pay homage. Such were the subtle deceptions. You see, there's a ruler with arbitrary rules that you better, you better keep, because if you don't, he's got power, and he'll police the breaches of that, that law, and he'll punish you. We aren't free anymore. We're slaves to this ruler, this law. This is all imperialism that he's, he's raising in heaven. Next paragraph. And this is what, this is the key paragraph. There had been no change in the position or authority of Christ. Lucifer's envy and misrepresentation and his claims to equality with Christ had made necessary a statement of the true position of the Son of God. But this had been the same from the beginning. So this declaration, this need to state all authority, I think, is based on the fact that that Christ's authority has been questioned and misrepresented. But his authority has always been true. But the lessons about the crucifixion and resurrection, and I received this email this week based on something that happened in class a few weeks ago, directly related to the question of Christ's crucifixion. It says, a few Sabbaths back, you mentioned in class that you do not believe Christ died the second death. I would very much like to hear more about this. I have listened to that lesson three times. However, I still have questions. I understand, of course, that Christ is alive today, so obviously did not die forever. But I thought that was because he conquered death, that because he himself had never sinned, that death could not hold him. Also, I've understood that Christ's psychological experience at the time was like that, was, was like what it will be for those who die the second death. He experienced all of our sin upon him while fully comprehending how far from Well, I guess I would have to say at this point, from design law, those sins took him. They were so far from design protocol that the natural consequence would be death. Isn't this what those dying the second death will experience, the natural results of not being willing to have God heal and change us? I would love uh, for you to have an article on the website addressing this issue specifically. Thank you again for all you're doing to dispel the lies that Satan has woven around God's character. So if you go to our website and you type in the search engine, and I I just want to tell people, use the search engine up the top, it really works well, and just type in second death, you'll find an article entitled, Did Christ Die the Second Death? that was put there in 2008. So the article's there, and it goes through a lot of this, but I thought uh, today that maybe we should ask this question. Did Christ die the second death? And let's go through a logic train before you say no. Let's go through a logic train. See how, how maybe I get to where I get to some of my conclusions? Wouldn't it be important, before we answer yes or no, that we actually define what we mean by the second death? Wouldn't that be important? Okay, so before we can answer the question, we have to all kind of come to an agreement of what that means. So let's define what is the second death. And where do you look for an answer to that question? Where's the source? Y'all sleeping on me this morning? <laughs> Eternal non-existence. But where do you look for the definition of second death? 
Okay. So we start with scripture. Okay, start with scripture. You're saying revelation. Yeah, it says about the, the New Jerusalem and everything and the after the second resurrection of the You know the term second death is used four times. Four times in scripture. And they're all in Revelation. Two eleven, twenty six, twenty fourteen, and twenty one eight. So only four times. The first two times, the Bible tells us that the second death has no power over the righteous and those who rise in the first resurrection. That's all it says. Second death has no power over them. Doesn't really tell us much, but that's what it tells us. The next two times, though, give us a little more insight. Here's the here's Revelation twenty fourteen. The lake of fire is the second death. And then twenty one eight, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Hmm. So according to Revelation, so far, if we take that, the second death is occurs where? Where does the second death occur? Lake of fire. Or dying in the lake of fire. Did Christ die in the lake of fire? Do we have any inspired evidence that fire came down from God and consumed Christ on the cross? No, we don't have that. In fact, do we get just the opposite? When Christ pleads, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does the Bible describe the condition of the atmosphere around Christ at that time? It's actually described in the, in the Gospels. Darkness, darkness covered the, the earth at that time. It was impenetrable darkness. So where the wicked are dying in, in flames of some kind of fire, Christ is dying in impenetrable, impenetrable darkness. First point, it's not the lake of fire that he died in. He died in darkness. Next point, what about this fire that there's a lake of fire? What is this fire? He said God's glory. Remember Hebrews twelve twenty nine. Our God is a consuming fire. Ellen White wrote in Desire of Ages 107, to sin wherever it is found. Our God is a consuming fire. If you look at Revelation, where does Revelation say this fire occurs? The third angel's message, it says, they will be tormented with fire and sulfur. Remember that, that, that sulfurous stuff we just read about up here, and this, which is the second death? They will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Where is this fire taking place? And if you actually look up the Greek word for this burning sulfur or sulfurous fire, the Greek word is theon, T-H-I-O-N. And if you've got T-H-I-O-S, theos, that's God, and, you're, and if you study theos, you're a theologian, or you study theology. And so it actually is divine incense or divine fire that's being described here. And so another place in Scripture says the wicked are destroyed by the brightness of his... Oh, that, that's, that's the, the fire of his presence again. Interesting, isn't it? So Greek controversy describes it this way, on page 664. This is uh, after the thousand years. The New Jerusalem's come down from heaven. The wicked from all history have been raised. Satan is marshalling the forces to attack the city of God with the saints inside the city with, with Christ. So says, at last, the order to advance is given. And the countless host moves on. An army such as never summoned by earthly conquerors, such as the combined forces of all the ages since war began on earth, could never equal. Satan, the mightiest of warriors, leads the van, and his angels unite their forces for the final struggle. Kings and warriors are in his train and the multitudes follow in vast companies, each under its appointed leader. With military position, the serried ranks advance over the earth's broken uneven surface to the city of God. By command of Jesus, the gates of the new Jerusalem are closed. 
What, what, what position would they have been in up to that point? Get your mind around that. It's huge, huge, huge insight. New Jerusalem's on the earth. And up until this point, the gates have been opened. Think through, this is one of the reasons the wicked are raised in the end. To reveal that God doesn't keep anybody out. That they stay out by their own free will choices. They won't come in. That's for, for all those who say, well, he, he shortened their probation at, at Sodom. He shortened their probation at the flood or any other place, the platoons that arrest Elijah. Some, somebody died in, in the fire that Elijah called down. And well, then their chance for salvation. Nope. End of the thousand years, they demonstrate by their free will choices, they won't come into the kingdom. They're not kept out by God. It's, it's pr- profound stuff. Okay. Um, by command of Jesus, the gates of New Jerusalem are closed and the armies of Satan surround the city and make ready for the onset. Now Christ again appears to the view of his enemies far above the city upon a foundation of burnished gold is the throne high and lifted up. Upon the throne sits the Son of God and around him are the subjects of his kingdom. The power and majesty of Christ no language can describe, no pen portray. The glory of the eternal father is enshrouding his son. The brightness of his presence fills the city of God and flows out beyond the gates, flooding the whole earth with its radiance. Notice the direction of the fire. You'll hear a lot of preachers talk about Christ will be high and lifted up. Fire will come down from God and consume the wicked. But notice where the fire flows first. Over the people of God. It's profound. Why does it flow over the people of God? What, what, what do you think is happening to the people of God? Is, are they being harmed by this fire? What does that tell you about the fire? It's not harmful. It's life itself. It's life itself. Yeah, let's keep, let's keep reading. As soon as the book of records are open and the eye of Jesus looks upon the wicked, they are conscious of every sin they have ever committed. They see just where their feet diverge from the path of purity and holiness, just how far pride and rebellion have carried them in violation of the law of God, the seductive temptations which they encouraged by indulgence in sin, the blessings perverted, the messengers of God despised, the warnings rejected, the waves of mercy beaten back by the stubborn, unrepentant heart, all appear as if written in letters of fire. Now, this is just an aside because I want you to put the pieces together. Hopefully your computer's brains are popping in all the other references of Scripture that go along with this, like Daniel chapter 7. The Ancient of Days takes his throne, and rivers of fire come out from before him, and 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands are standing on this fire. But this is Isaiah of Ages 23, talking about Christ's incarnation coming to earth. Had he appeared with the glory that was his, with the Father before the world was, we could not have endured the light of his presence that we might behold it and not be destroyed, the manifestation of his glory was shrouded. His divinity was veiled with humanity, the invisible glory in the visible human form. Now, if he would have come with that glory, why would we have been destroyed? Would he have had a different attitude? Would he have been angry, hostile, unloving, unkind? Why would we have been destroyed? Is there something harmful in the fire? And, And remember, we're still answering the question, trying to discern second death, Lake of fire, what is going on there? What happened to Christ on the cross? Now, think about the fire. What do you think would have happened to Christ on the cross had the unveiled splendor of the Father poured out upon him at the cross? Would he have died? No. Well, we have have the answer to that question because it happened right before the cross and it's called what? What do we call it? Transfiguration. Transfiguration. What was happening at the transfiguration? It says that his clothes are so bright, it was brighter than the sun, they couldn't even look at him. And, and Elijah and Moses are standing there with him. These, the, the fire of God's glory isn't shrouding him. Did it hurt him? Not at all. 
No. This idea that if we take Scripture, the second death is the lake of fire. The lake of fire is what? The unveiled glory of God, which again is enshrouding the earth. Everything that's out of harmony is being consumed to sin whatever is found. But Christ at the cross can't, can't die that way. If the Father's glory enshrouds him, that's the source of life. He's invigorated. He lives. The only way for him to die was for the Father to disconnect, not to connect. Some Bible commentators add further clarification between the first and second death, noting that the first death is the death from which there is a resurrection, and the second death there is no resurrection. And this is very sound. If we accept that additional demarcation, as was already said from the person who wrote the, wrote the email, we recognize that Christ rose again, so something is different about his death than the death that the wicked die in the end. And then Christ himself said, not using second death language, but giving a description of two different types of death. In Matthew 10, 28, he said this, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. There's two types of death being described here, right? Now, you know the Greek word for soul? Psyche from which we get psychiatry and psychology. It means your individuality, your unique personhood. Now the wicked in the end, when they die, not only is their body gone for eternity, what about their identity, their personhood? Is it gone for eternity too? But Christ, when he rose again, what did the angels say to the apostles as they were watching Christ go up into heaven? The angel said, this same Jesus was he a different being or was he the same being? Was his character still intact? Was his individuality retained through that death experience? His soul was not destroyed there at all. Do you see that? So this isn't the same thing. So if we use the Bible guide for demarcating the three features of the second death, one, lake of fire death, Two, death without resurrection. Three, death which destroys both body and soul, psyche, individuality, mind. None of those are met in Christ. He didn't die in the fire. He did rise again, and his individuality stayed intact. So the Bible seems to be making a case that Jesus didn't die the second death. If he didn't die the second death, then what was the significance of his death? How is it different than the death that every other human dies? Because it was different, profoundly different. But how? What did he accomplish? There you go. This is it. This is accomplished. What was he accomplishing? Connection with God. And he was accomplishing the demonstration of God's full nature of unselfish love. He was accomplishing the revelation of Satan's full character of hateful unselfishness to the point where he would kill God when he came to his planet. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Uh, he was creating a perfect character and, and replacing Adam's failure with the success. All true. All true. How about 2 Timothy, Timothy 1.10? Because we're dealing with this, did he die the second death? And all, everything you said is true. 2 Timothy 1.10, by his death he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. Think that through. Did he, was he destroyed by death? Which is the second death. The second death destroys those who, who experience it. Or did he, in fact, do something different? He destroys death. Now, how could that be? Because if you think, how did he destroy death? 
What is the basis of life? Well, it has its source in God, but it's based or built upon what? Design of love. Perfect, other-centered love. Humankind, in Adam, deviated from that design law, now terminal, dead in trespass and sin. We have a terminal condition. We can't fix it. We can't restore the perfect design back into the species. What did Christ do? He who knew no sin, he who knew no separation from God's design, became separated from God's design, became sin, so that he might, so that we might become the righteousness of God. So that we might be restored back to his design. Is that not what it means? So, this is uh, some scripture. Hebrews 2.14. I already gave you 2 Timothy 1.10. He destroyed death. He also destroyed him who holds the power of death that is the devil. Death results where selfishness rules. And death is destroyed where love reigns supreme. Get your mind around that. Death results where selfishness rules. Death is destroyed where love reigns supreme. Christ died when love overcame selfishness. No one can take my life. I give it or lay it down freely. This is an act of self-sacrificial love. Yet he was tempted in every way just like we are, yet without sin, the scripture says. And we're tempted when we're dragged away and enticed by our own evil desires, scripture says. And in Gethsemane you see Christ in his humanity, struggling with the temptation, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. His emotions were tempting him to act to save self, that survival drive that you, you and I struggle with. He felt. He felt that drive. He felt that temptation. Yes? You've used the example in the past of a criminal on death row who is, thinks he's getting the death penalty, but say, for example, that you give him a man static instead and just goes to sleep. He actually thought he was dying. I think that's kind of what you're, the person who did that email is the point they're making is psychologically, didn't Christ think that he was really dying? You know, I, I'm, uh, <clears throat> I'm going to, let's process that together. I use that example to show that objectively, and, and the reason people that really hold to the second death experience and try to make these, what I call psychological twists of logic, well, he thought he was going to die the second death. It felt to him like it was. Therefore, it really was because they, they operate under the imperial law construct. And the imperial law construct is the wages of sin is death. Somebody has to pay the penalty. The penalty is eternal death. If Christ didn't die the second death, then our penalty is not paid. If our penalty is not paid, we're going to have to pay it. Oh, no, we're not saved. So it terrifies them to think he didn't die the second death. So they have to make these mental constructs. When you show the evidence that this death was something other than the second death, and it was, it was much more profound than simply a penalty. It was, a, it was an eradication of an infection. It was a curing of a species. But I use that example to show that somebody on death row in, in America has been sentenced to death. And we put them in the death chamber in a, in a state where they do lethal injection. And the IV's in. And the medicine goes in. They feel the warmth running through their veins. They know they're going to die. But instead, they're given Versed or some other um, anesthetic. And they're just put to sleep. And they're woken 72 hours later. They're sleeping for three days. And they're woken 72 hours later. Would the, would the government say, that, that counts, they paid their penalty because they thought they were going to die? Would that work for anybody? Not at all. But that's what the penal substitution people say happened. It's ridiculous. So I actually, 
if you read Ellen White's writings, you'll, you have to, there, there's subtlety there. She says he could not see through the portals of the tomb. He was tempted to believe his separation with the Father would be eternal. This was the devil's temptation. And if you read, the devil was alleging to him that this would be eternal. So that he experienced those temptations, yes. However, how many times did he say himself, I will rise again? How many times did he say, I will rise again? I will die and on the third day rise again. How many times? Repeatedly he said this. So I think he was tempted to experience those things. I don't think he died. In fact, Ellen White, if you read her in Desire of Ages, she said that when the temptations came on the cross and he was tempted to, to feel the, the, that he, his, his separation from the Father would be forever, what did he say? Into your hands I surrender my spirit, Father. I trust you. And she says the sense of the Father's separation was removed and he died a victor. See, I don't think he died that terrible. He, he was tempted with all that emotional stuff. But I think, and he says by faith, by confidence, by trust, by the knowledge of who his father was, by understanding how God's design law of love works, by understanding who he was and his purpose and his mission, I think he had serious knowledge of what he was achieving at his death and he knew he would rise again. Yes? So many called out saying, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was along the temptation line of thinking, maybe he has separated from me. I think that was along the emotional experience line. That's what he was feeling because he did feel abandoned and separated from God. Okay, And in fact, God did separate his life-giving glories from him. There's no question. He did feel that because it was the only way for Christ to achieve. And we'll get to that, what he achieved here in a minute. Okay, So let's see if we can get a couple more points, see if these tie these threads back together. So the difference between Christ's death on the cross and what the wicked die in the end, let's just go down a bullet list. Christ died trusting the Father, yes or no? Did he die at the end trusting his Father? Do the wicked die trusting the Father? No. So that's a big difference. Christ died longing to see his Father's face. What are the wicked crying out as they die? Hide us from the Father. Let the mountains fall on us. They don't want to see the Father's face. Christ died when the Father's presence was withdrawn or hidden, this this abandonment that you just point out. The wicked die when the Father's glory is fully revealed. Just the opposite. You'll notice these are just opposite experiences going on here. Christ died less than 72 hours. The wicked die for eternity. And I think the most important, this is the, the, to me the, the real critical one. Christ died when love overcame selfishness. The wicked die overcome by selfishness. And the reason why the people insist on this second death stuff is because they're operating at level four, this imperial law construct, and somebody has to pay the penalty. And therefore, Christ had to die that death because if he doesn't, our penalty is not paid. When you come back to design law, you'll realize that the problem was never a legal problem and God wasn't demanding a penalty. What life requires is perfect harmony. As we read in Desire of Ages 762, the law requires righteousness, a righteous life. This man has not to give, but Christ came in the form of man, developed a perfect character. This he offers as a free gift to all who will accept it. Why does the law require righteousness, a perfect character? For the same reason the law of respiration requires that you breathe. Why does the law of respiration require you breathe? Why does it require that? It's so restrictive. No, it's because that's how things are built to work. It's the only way life works. This is why it's required. 
So I want to read to you Ephesians 2, 14 through 18 out of the NIV and then from the remedy. This is the NIV. For he himself in our place, excuse me, for he himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death, put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we have access to the Father by one spirit. I'll read it to you from the remedy, what I think this means. For Christ himself is the remedy that heals the species and brings peace. He has removed fear and selfishness that causes division, mistrust, prejudice, and hostility. He did this by partaking our human condition and via the exercise of his human brain, he loved perfectly, thereby destroying in his flesh the selfish survival of the fittest drive along with the lies of Satan. In this way, he destroyed the need for the law with his regulations to expose Satan's lies and methods. His purpose was to be the template of a new humanity, born out of the unification of the two, our selfish infected condition merged with his sinless state, thereby purging selfishness from the human heart, transforming, healing, renewing, regenerating, and recreating humanity back to God's original ideal. And in this new being to reconcile the human race, regardless of ethnic background, into loving unity with God and each other through the revelation of truth at the cross by which he destroyed the lies of Satan, reestablished trust, removed fear, selfishness, and hostility. He came and demonstrated the truth of God's character and the offer of peace available to all humanity, to those far away in darkness and those blessed with the truth of God's word. For Jesus revealed the truth about God to all, and through what Jesus has done, all have access to the Father by one spirit. Thoughts? This is so much more profound, the accomplishments of what Christ has done, than simply paying a debt to an arbitrary judge to, to appease some demand of justice in, the, in an imperial system. But let's ask this question. What about the Father's actions towards Christ and the Father's actions towards the wicked in the end? Does the Father act differently toward either one? Think it through. Or is the Father acting exactly the same towards both? And what were the Father's actions towards Christ on the cross? What did, he, what did he choose to do with his, his power, his choice? What was the Father's actions toward Christ? He chose to set him free, to let him go, to reap what Christ chose. Christ chose to be our remedy. Christ chose to go through that cross for the purpose of restoration and healing. And Father stopped interceding, stopped holding at bay what would happen when the culmination of that choice came to fruition. And what does God do to the wicked in the end? He lets go. He sets them free to reap what they have chosen. And they've chosen eternal separation from him. And so God's actions on both are exactly the same. He sets them free to reap what they choose. It's just that Christ chose trust and love, and the wicked choose distrust and selfishness. Thoughts about any of that? Tim, it's interesting to me that most people firmly believe in the duality of human nature, which of course means that we have a physical body and then we have a psyche, which they say is the immortal soul. Mm -hmm. 
they always refer to that as the universal spirit or the universal consciousness that we're all supposedly connected to. And yet they refuse to allow a standard of life and death within that spirit. Interesting. If you jump to um, Monday's lesson, the cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the first paragraph, it says, Matthew records what has been called by theologians the cry of dereliction. Dereliction brings in the idea of abandonment, of something to be left alone and in need. In this case, we can see Jesus' sense of abandonment by his father. The darkness that surrounded the land at the time symbolized divine judgment. Jesus was experiencing in himself the horrific consequences of sin, of complete separation from the Father. In our behalf, he was bearing in himself the divine judgment against sin that should be ours. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. On the cross, Jesus appropriates the language of Psalms 22 because in a unique way, he is experiencing what humans experience, the separation from God due to sin. So, what is God's wrath according to Scripture? How does it function? Anybody know? There it is. Romans 1, 18. The wrath of God is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness of men who express the truth by their wickedness in 24, 26, 28. Therefore God gave them up. And Paul ties it together in Romans four twenty five, where he says, therefore Jesus was given up. Same Greek for our salvation at the cross. There it is. So yes, God is letting go and giving up. Um, but this would be my understanding like this, like a parent who lets go of their healthy child who is donating a kidney to save their child in renal failure. They know their healthy child is going to suffer through painful ordeal, but they are pleased to allow it because it will result in saving the other child. And then they have them both. This is why God was pleased that Christ be bruised for our iniquities, as it says in Isaiah. Not because Christ's suffering was pleasing, but through Christ's suffering would be the remedy that saves the children that he loves. It was the only way to achieve that outcome. As it says, he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. Um, in uh, Sunday's lesson, first paragraph states, it was Barabbas, the murderer, who was supposed to be crucified on the middle cross. The criminals on either side were possibly his associates. Barabbas was not his first name, but a last one. Bar means son of, just as Simon Bar-Jonah means the son of Jonah, or Bartholomew means the son of Ptolemy. Um, Barabbas means the son of Abbas, meaning son of the father. Many early manuscripts re- record Barabbas' first name as Yeshua, Jesus such that Yeshua was a common name at the time, meaning Yahweh saves. So Barabbas' name was along the lines of Yahweh saves, son of the father. Isn't that interesting? Is it surprising to you that Satan had a counterfeit to Christ? Is that surprising? No. If you look through history, Satan is constantly counterfeiting the work of God, constantly. And if we just look at some of the counterfeits through history... The sacrifices and ordinances that God gave to teach God's character of selfless love and how sin severs the design of love in God's plan to heal has been counterfeited into an appeasement myth, a legal payment myth. And that's what most people think. Elijah, the true prophet of God, was counterfeited by false prophets and many others through Old Testament times, many false prophets arising to counterfeit the true. Galatians, Paul speaks of counterfeit gospel, focusing on legalities and rituals and behavior. 
Jesus said that many false messiahs would come. In the 19th century, during the Great Awakening, there was a counterfeit awakening of spiritualism, which is still going strong today. But what do you think the greatest counterfeit of all has been? And if you're not sure, what moment in history was, by Barnon, the most critical moment in all universal history? Wasn't it the moment we're talking about today, the cross? Do you think that hasn't been counterfeited? Or has there been a counterfeit understanding of the entire meaning and purpose of the cross? So that people claim a belief in Jesus, claim the benefits of the cross, but they're claiming a counterfeit gospel that actually enslaves them rather than frees them. Has there been counterfeit teachings about the Sabbath? The Sabbath, which is a day that was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, a day of liberty and freedom, a day when God rested after giving evidence to leave his children free to think for themselves, has it been counterfeited to the day that enslaves? And look at 2,000 years ago. Which day was the day of greatest burden, the greatest enslavement, the greatest restriction? How many Adventists have accepted the counterfeit view of of, of the Sabbath? And they have the day, but their whole understanding of it is counterfeit. Thus, they're enslaved by a system of rituals and rules. How about the cross? Has it been counterfeited? How? Alternative meaning being given to it. Alternative purpose. Alternative meaning. All of these things have a root, though, in a caliphate law. The caliphate law, which he originated in heaven, as he read earlier. And and here, think about it. Christ said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. One of the prime missions, in addition to curing the condition, was to reveal, as you said earlier, the truth about God and expose Satan to the liar. That God, did God lay a hand on his son at the cross? Not a hand. He didn't touch him. He didn't murder him. He didn't kill him. How is it that most of Christianity, and I don't have the quotes with me today, you've heard them before, they're in our lectures, but most denominations in Christianity teach that God killed Christ at the cross. That justice required a death penalty, and God is the cosmic judge, and therefore God executes Christ in sinner's place for justice sake. And the entire cross is perverted not to teach the beauty of God's character of love, but to teach an arbitrary dictator. And so we believe in God, but we're held in the enslavement of fear like the first person we read today who lived in fear of God his whole life. Yes? It's also interesting that all of these things that have been counterfeited have also been worshipped. In other words, the Sabbath has been worshipped rather than the Sabbath. The cross emblem and everything is made rather than the Lord of the cross. I mean, so many, so many things that are put there for a purpose are being worshipped instead of why they were there. Yeah, and the blood. How many worship the blood? Saved by the blood, power in the blood. How many believers have power in the blood? Don't raise your hand, please. <laughs> is the power in the blood or is the power in the one who shed his blood? Where's the power? These subtle little shifts. You're exactly right. And then we have magical thinking. We have to partake in certain rituals because we think there's power in the blood and there's power in the ritual. If you don't do the ritual, then there's no power and we become superstitious. Yeah. You search scripture, you think that's where your salvation comes from. Yep. Bibliolatry. Hematolatry. Yes. I'm just going to quote something that backs up what you were saying in Isaiah 53. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten. There you go. By him. False gospel. Mm-hmm. He was pierced for our iniquities, our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we're healed. Beautiful. 
Beautiful. Yes, Karen. And what uh, uh, counterfeit of the incarnation? I mean, ultimately, God with man had to take place before the cross, before any of our demonstrations. Have you seen... Uh, the mystery religions that were very popular at the time, um, and uh, that had a, 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 an incarnated, rising, dying Savior. Baal worship, we've talked about before. Baal was the son of El, as in Elohim, El Shaddai. Uh, Baal was the god of thunder, lightning, weather, brought the produce in the, har- in the harvest. Baal fought against M- <clears throat> the Leviathan, the great serpent. Baal, Baal fought against Mot, which was the god of death. And in his battle with Mot, Baal dies and rises again to bring life to the earth. And so here in this Baal worship that was going on in Elijah's day, you have the, the, the son of the father God, who is fighting against the great serpent and fighting against death, who brings life to the earth and dies in his battle with death and rises again to bring us life. And what was wrong with this? Well, the problem with Baal was Baal required appeasement. You had to bring some offering to Baal to appease him or else you would get wrath. You would get, you would get drought instead of, instead of rain in the land. It wasn't a good God. And Baal, over the course of time, became Jupiter to the Romans, Zeus to the Greeks, Thor to the Norse people, God of thunder, and Jesus Christ today to those people who worship Jesus but have all those characteristics we just described, a God who must be appeased by the blood of an innocent sacrifice. That is Baal worship. It's the same thing. And that's why Malachi said that, in the, that uh, before the great and terrible day of the Lord, the prophet Elijah must come again to turn the hearts of the fathers to the sons and sons of the fathers back. The law, the, the law of love, the, the truth about God's character of love must be presented again to call people back from this distortion that has been so. Yes, it's been it's been counterfeited. Are, are you going to touch on the coming counterfeit? No, not not today, because I wanted to get to this question in Tuesday's lesson about the torn veil. The torn veil. Um, as you think about this torn veil, do you know how? The, first off, do you all know how traditional Christianity and traditional Adventism? When I say traditional, what is commonly taught from the pulpits that this symbolizes? That the veil represents, typically, what does people teach that the veil represents? Anybody know? Christ's body, who is being struck down by the Father as punishment for sin. That's what they teach. So when you look at the veil, before you even unpack it, first ask the question, what Russell said, what law lens are you looking through? Because the law lens will determine how you understand me. Are we looking through an imperial system of broken rules that requires punishment? Or are we looking through God's design law that we're out of harmony with that will result in death unless God, through Christ, heals and restores? Which view are you looking through? Now, if you're looking through design, uh, the, uh, the punishment view, then you come up with that conclusion that some, someone had to pay the price and God struck Christ down at the cross and the, and the veil represents him. You're going to find a lot of problems when we start unpacking the meaning here. Let's unpack some of the meaning and see what happens. So, first off, in that old little theater, who was actually able to put their eyes on visually and look at the veil? Which, which, which people, which members of the society could do that? The high priest and the priests, okay, in their white robes. The high priest and the priests. And, and, and in that system, in that little theater... The people with their white robes, the priests with their white robes, who do they symbolically represent? The believers, those who have accepted Jesus, who have been covered with the character, the robe of Christ's righteousness. That's what they represent. Okay. What about the rest of Israel, all the other tribes? Could, could they go in and lay their eyes on that? They couldn't. What do they, who do they represent in the, in the little theater? 
the unconverted peoples of the world who haven't yet accepted Christ. Okay, that's what they represent. And, and when you understand what this veil is going to get, you'll understand why they don't see it. They don't see the veil because they don't even see the great controversy. They don't see the issues in the war. Only those who've come to conversion understand what's actually going on. All right, what does the holy place represent? The actual holy place. What's, what's it symbolic of? All right, if you're not sure, think about what's in there. Well, if you walk into the left, what's on the left? The lampstand's on the left. What's the lampstand symbolize? Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It represents the living word, Jesus Christ, and the written word, the word of God. On the right, you have the table of showbread and the wine there. What does the wine and showbread symbolize? Basically, Jesus. Okay? Do you know, and do you know what happened every Sabbath? Every Sabbath, every Sabbath, the daily priests with their white robes would join the high priest in the holy place and they would eat the showbread each week. What's the symbol? It's very straightforward. The, the holy place represents the church. In the church, you have the word of God. In the church, you have uh, the, the believers coming together on Sabbath to partake of the word, which is the bread of heaven that has come down. And then the golden altar represents the hearts of the converted persons where the incense is being burned because only the converted are giving praise and, and, and prayers to God, which goes up before him as a sweet fragrance. And the Holy Spirit and Christ are working on the, uh, on the golden altar. So it's the church. So, and that's why the ones with their white robes are there because they're the believers. Now, if you're a believer in God, it's all symbolism, you're in there in the holy place, you love God, you want to see him more fully, you want to come closer to him, you want more intimacy with him, so you look back to the most holy place where God is, the Shekinah glory, but something obstructs your view. What's in the way? A veil's in the way, and what do you actually see on the veil? What's sown on the veil? Angels are sown on the veil. Now, in this controversy between God and Satan, has there ever been a time where there have been angels obstructing our view of God? Yes. Has that ever happened? Think that, I mean, this is pretty straightforward stuff. We can't see God because there's angels in the way. Well, what kind of angels are in the way? Lucifer and his host are obstructing the way to God. The veil must be destroyed. If we're going to have unity with God, that barrier has to be broken down. Something has to open a way so we can get back to God again. Don't you get little beams of light coming from underneath? Well, well the top, the top, yes. Right, so, right, exactly. Through the glass darkly. The, the Shekinah would come over the top, but you couldn't see clearly because the veil was obstructing. Now, that veil had to be destroyed. So at Christ's death, what gets destroyed? Hebrews 2.14. By his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. So the Bible's telling us the devil, who is an angel, is being destroyed by the death of Christ, and the veil with angels on it is being destroyed by the death of Christ. Further. Yes. That's a double symbolism and triple metaphor. Yes. (laughs) Because we have to stick with the text, which says, Jesus made the way... I'm going to quote that text here in a second. Right. And so we have to allow for more than one symbolic meaning. Yes, yes, and, and, and I was about to give the second one. Okay. And the second one is in First Timothy. So the one meaning, Satan, and by the way, what's the power? Might destroy him holds the power of death, that is the devil. What's the devil's power? Deception, right. This is life eternal. They might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ and thou sent. Eternal life is knowing God. Eternal death is 
not knowing God. Satan has the power of death. He's the father of lies. And so his power that gets us to die is getting us to believe lies about God that prevent us from knowing him. And at the cross, Christ destroyed him hold the power of death by revealing the truth about God, which destroys his lies. He disarms him, takes his weapons from him because we see who God is really like. So this is part of what's being rent with the veil. Next, 1 Timothy 1.10, excuse me, 2 Timothy 1.10. Christ destroyed death and brought life and immortality to life. What does this mean? What is death? What does that mean? What is the basis of death? It is being out of harmony with God's design. So if you think about what separates us from God, there's two things that separate us from God. The lies of Satan, which we believe, and our own carnal natures. Our own fear and selfishness and distrust in our hearts. That separates us from God too. And Christ took upon himself our our fallen nature, if you will, that if, you, if you want to use that language. I don't like that language myself. But he took up this condition upon himself and fixed it. He destroyed it. I like to say he destroyed the carnal nature. Um, by destroying the lives of Satan and the carnal nature we inherited from Adam, Christ opened a new and living way. And so here's Hebrews 10, 19 and 20. It says, We have then, my brothers and sisters, complete freedom to go into the most holy place by means of the death of Christ. He opened for us a new and living way through the curtain that is through his own body. Now, some people will say that his own body is referring to the curtain. I think his own body is referring to the new and living way. It's the way through the curtain. What was destroyed at the cross was that carnal, if you will, that selfish temptation that Christ experienced. And you see it in Gethsemane, those powerful human emotions that tempt us to act in self-interest. He, he crushed those with love at the cross. And Satan's lies were destroyed at the cross. Thus, a new and living way has been opened for us. And then 2 Corinthians 2, 3, and 4, just to throw another text in. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is in the image of God. I mean, he's not kind of alluding to we can't see the light of the glory, the kind of glory, because there's a veil obstructing our mind. And who's doing it? The God of this age, Satan, is doing it. So that's what I think it means. I have a lot of pushback from people on this interpretation because they have an idea already in their mind that they've been taught from childhood that we are under a legal condemnation. Jesus took our place on death row. He was executed for justice sake and was struck down by his father. And, the, and the, the veil represents that striking down. I, I don't think Jesus was, if you think through the symbolism, do you think Jesus was ever the obstruction to the Father? No, he's never blocked our way to the Father. He's been constantly working to open the way to the Father. And the way I put this and the way I see it, it, it all fits. Yes, way in the back. Somebody online? Ah, this is a great question. Are we just puppets? Uh, we're, we're absolutely not just puppets. We are free sentient beings. And the reason he waited 4,000 years was for the very reason we're not puppets. Had we been puppets, then he would have done anything at any time. But Christ was having to wait until the times are fulfilled. As it used, that's, I think it's a Bible language there. Until the times are fulfilled or the times are right. What times? Because there's multiple layers of things being revealed. We've already talked about several. Truth about God's character. Exposing Satan as a liar and fraud. All these things are being... But if you're looking at a universal perspective, it says angels long to look into these things. We are a theater, a spectacle to angels and to men. God's plan of salvation is trying to, to teach things to the angelic host as well. And 
if you look at the history of mankind up until that point, how was Israel doing at following God's instructions? They were constantly back into Baal worship, constantly back into Baal worship. But this is the first time in their history that on the surface, they appeared to be following the script. They're following the rules and they're following them rigidly and they've added to them because they're going to make sure they're going to keep the rules. And so what we find at this time and something other layer of truth is that you can follow the exact written script as Paul talks about how he did. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, uh, circumcised on the eighth day and all these things that he did exactly like he was supposed to. And you can do all that and still be an enemy of God. Because angels cannot read hearts and minds. It says man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. Angels also look on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. And God needed to reveal that on the outward appearance, you could appear to be his best friend on the outside, but still be his enemy in heart. And that's what was revealed when he came 2,000 years ago. We have this group following the script, who actually are his enemies. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you've achieved in our behalf, because we could have never done it. We, we are amazed at the beauty of your character, your graciousness, your mercy, your love. We ask that you will send your spirit to help put the pieces together that we can see how it all fits under the, your design of love, truth, and freedom. We pray that uh, you will uh, bless our ministry, bless uh, those who are sharing this message about you, open avenues so this message might go forward, and that we might see you soon, Lord. We pray in your holy name. Amen.